We are continuing our series of studies in the book of Malachi, Hard Answers to Easy Questions. And the question that we are considering number six is, how can we repent if we don't know where we have gone wrong? That's an easy question. How can we repent if we don't know where we have gone wrong? But God gives another people a hard answer. We look at what the answer is even as we go through this passage this evening. And we'll read uh, now Malachi chapter 3 from verses 6 on to 12. I, the Lord, do not change, so you descendants of Jacob are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the wines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. In verse 6, we read that I, the Lord, do not change, so you descendants of Jacob are not destroyed. He tells the children of Israel, you descendants of Jacob. If you notice, this a marked change from calling them children of Israel and now calling them as children of Jacob. Now, obviously, we would know the difference because Jacob was a trickster. He was a manipulator. And when the Lord refers to the children of Israel as children of Jacob, what he's really saying is, you are just the same as Jacob. You have never really changed. So it was really a rebuke for their disobedience. It was a reference to their forefather, and you know, Jacob, how he rebelled. And here, there's a compare and contrast that is spoken between verses 6 and 7. If verse 6 says, you know, I do not change, Verse 7 is saying, but you guys are constantly changing, constantly rebelling against me. Prior to these verses, Malachi portrays the priests and the people alike as corrupt and self-serving and resistant to fulfilling their covenant obligations. And Malachi chapter 3 and verse 7 now begins by recalling the failure of the ancestors to return because they consistently turned aside from following the statutes of Yahweh. So what the Lord is saying, hey, this is not just between you, this generation, and between the priests of this generation. You have been like this right from the very beginning. Even your ancestors were like that. But the Lord is saying, I don't change. I don't change. You have been changing. You have been living the same type of life so many years down the line. But you have not really changed, but I do not change. And when the verse ends and says, test me now, prove me now, it is actually a culmination of that statement by saying, I do not change. 
It is not, uh, you know, if you were to say a promise that is given, they say, if you give some money to the church, then the Lord will give you double of that. No, the emphasis is, I, the Lord, do not change. My principles remain the same. But you guys, you have constantly been rebelling against me. This is why in verses 7 to 9, if you notice, the Lord pronounces a, a judgment because of a persistence in robbing God. A persistence in robbing God invokes God's judgment. And the only cure for this uh, is to repent. The only cure for this is to return to God. That's why the Lord is saying, return to me and I will return to you. So he gives now a history of their transgression, a history of their transgression. He says, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. So this indictment, you know, this judgment, if you were to say, sweeps them back to the very beginning, right, if you were to say, from the very birth of Israel. They were repeatedly, <coughs> excuse me, and persistently disobedient. This is what we find in Ezra chapter 9 and verse 7, where Ezra declares, since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt, and on account of our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, to open shame, as it is to this day. So Ezra is in a saying over there, so many years, right from the very beginning till today, this has been the same. God shows them a history of their transgression. The word that is used there for you have turned aside means to you know, be leaning in the wrong direction, to bend out of the regular line, to turn aside or to deviate from the right way or course. The Lord set the course before them and says, this is the way walking in it. But what happened? They do not stay on that course. They kept leaning in the wrong direction. Just as much as Lot's wife turned back and she became a pillar of salt. The children of Israel came out of Egypt, but Egypt did not come out of them. Then later on you find God sent them into you know, captivity in Babylon. They spent 70 years in Babylon. They were now out, but Babylon was still not yet out of Israel. This is the history of what they were doing. Now, we must ask ourselves this evening, when we think about our own spiritual lives, the Lord opened up the way, we responded to Christ, He put us on the road. Now, have we stayed on that road or have we been leaning in the wrong direction? Jesus spoke about two roads, isn't it? The broad way and the narrow way. Are we on the narrow way, but still trying to lean out and saying, hey, I can have the pleasures of that world as well. No detours, if you were to say, in the Christian life. God wants us to stay on the narrow road. So this is why the Lord now gives an offer of restoration. He says, hey, this is how you guys have been, but I'm giving you an offer. Return to me and I will return to you. Again, it's a contrast over there. They had turned aside, but the Lord has not changed. His principles have not changed. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. If you return to me, I will definitely 
return to you. The word that is used there for return in the Old Testament is the New Testament word repentance. To say, hey, I have been going in the wrong direction. I've been leaning in the wrong direction. I'm going to come back. And the Lord is so gracious. If you look at this whole book of Malachias, much as there's a judgment, you also find the grace of God constantly reaching out, constantly reaching out. So even this evening, as we look into our own lives and then the road that we are in right now, the Lord says, if there's been deviations, if there's been detours, the Lord says, return to me and I will return to you. Good offer, isn't it? You know? But what is the response of the Israelites or the Jacobites, if you were to say? They had two self-righteous questions. They had two self-righteous questions. They basically were saying, where have we gone wrong? Where have we gone wrong? The first self-righteous question was, but you say, how shall we return? How shall we return? And the second self-righteous question was, how have we robbed you. So let's look at the first one. How shall we return? When we are confronted with our sins today, when the Lord comes and says, hey, you have been on the wrong track or you're leaning in the wrong direction, would we say sorry to God and return back to him? Or would we come up with different, different excuses in our lives? Vernon Meggie put it across this way. He says, I would say that this is pretty much the picture of a great many folk in the church today. Ritualism has been substituted for reality. Pageantry has been substituted for power. The aesthetic has been substituted for the spiritual and form for feeling. Even in the orthodox, conservative, and evangelical circles, they know the vocabulary, but the power of God is gone. They are satisfied with a tasteless morality. They follow a few little shibboleths, and they feel that everything is all right. Would this be the indictment of the Lord against us this evening? We know the vocabulary, but the power is gone. We say a few religious words you know, and think that all is right. How shall we return? So if you notice, the first word in their response is that little tiny word, but, isn't it? You know, this is you know, an important word in scripture. So here the Lord is saying, you return to me, I will return to you. But, okay, it's a contrast over God's keenness in us returning and the children of Israel saying, but we don't really want to return. We have not really gone away at all. The Living Bible paraphrase puts it this way. Come and I will forgive you. But you say we have never even gone away. That's what they were really saying. You know, we have never really gone away. So this was not a question of clarification. They said, Lord, please show us how we can return. But this was one of disputation. They were disputing the very fact that they had gone away. In fact, the New Living Translation renders the people's exclamation well, where it reads as, how can we return when we have never gone away? God, what are you talking about? That is the audacity with which the children of Israel were responding. We have never really gone away. We are on the right track. If you notice, the word repentance is not just a, a change in direction. 
but it is also a restoration of a relationship and a reconfirmation of commitment with somebody. It's not only just a change in direction, but there's a restoration of a relationship. When you are unaware of how you have gotten to where you are, returning to where you started is rather difficult. If you're walking through the woods and you do not record your steps, it's difficult to retrace them. How much more difficult it is when you do not realize that you are lost. Now, this is a question we must ask ourselves this evening. Do you recognize that you are lost? Ah, do you think nothing is wrong? I'm on the right track. That's a sad indictment about the church today, doing their own thing, leaning towards the world, and not really recognizing that they are no longer the salt and the light of the world, as God expected the church to be. The first step to come back is the first step that the prodigal son did. The first thing that he said was, how did I get there? He get here. He looked into his life and said, hey, in my father's house, there are servants, and here I'm sitting in this pigsty. How did this really happen? The first place to start is to admit that you have departed. Now, you may not have left on purpose. Perhaps it was just a very slow drift. You, know? you don't really necessarily decide to rebel at a particular time. There's a little neglect here, there's a little neglect there, and you start doing something that is not good, and after that, you realize how far you have fallen, okay? So the first step is to recognize where you are now from where you were real earlier. Even this evening, it's a good and a checkup for us to find out as soon as we came to know the Lord, the fervor for the Lord, the fire for the Lord, what we did for the Lord, our relationship with Him. How is it today? Has it been stronger or has it become colder? Let's return to God. The second step is to ask, you know, how do I get back home? What do I do? What does the prodigal say? He's decided, this is what I will do. I will go back to my father and say, I don't deserve to be called your son. I would be a servant, you know. And these are the steps that he decided that he will do. But even as he did that, the Bible tells us the father was waiting with open arms and ran and hugged him and met him. That's the picture of our heavenly father. Even the Lord this evening would say, hey, if you have leaned away, if you have gone away, if you have taken detours, you return to me. Think of how it was and think of how it is today. Return to me. I will return to you. The second question they ask you know, is, but you say, how have we robbed you. But you say, how have we robbed you? The question the Lord asked was, will a man rob God? Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? When the Lord says, will a man rob God? It was a rhetorical question. Nobody can rob God, isn't it? But still they said, you know, how have we robbed you? The Israelites' lack of financial generosity itself was not the problem, but was instead an indication of something below the surface, a wicked heart. It is not that they were not offering sacrifices, but what are the type of sacrifices that they were offering? Maimed, sick, blind animals. It was not that they were not giving their tithes, but they were keeping some for themselves. That's why the scripture says, bring your whole tithe, okay? So the question of robbing God came in over here, 
because they were doing the action without any heart in it, which was a wicked heart inside and saying, as long as I've done the action, as long as I've done the process, it is perfectly well. Now the Lord again will say, this is the attitude, then there is going to be a judgment that will come in. So there's a curse now for robbing God. There's a curse for robbing God. That's an absurd thing, isn't it, to rob God, okay? <coughs> so when they were asking, how can we return when we have never departed? God said, okay, open up your checkbook and see how much contribution you have made you know, to the temple. How much contribution have you made to the service of others? You know? Think for a moment, he says. Okay? You say you're not robbing. I was the one who gave you all that finances. What did you do with that finances? If you used it only for yourself rather than giving to God and his service, then the scripture is saying you have actually robbed God. Hank Hanagram has an interesting quote. Let, it, let me read it for you. He says, God is the landlord. We are just tenants. The Lord of glory has a, a title to the universe. We are simply stewards. All the things we acquire in this life are only on load. We didn't arrive with them. We won't take them with us. They all belong to God. And he will do with them just as he pleases. We are not the owners. We are only tenants. We are not the owners. We are only stewards. So if we keep back for ourselves what really belongs to God, then God says, you are robbing me. It's not just the money. It's your talents. It's your time. You know, it's your very life. If we say this is my life, then the Bible is saying you are actually robbing God because this is not our life. This is his life. He has created us. He has bought us again with the precious blood of the Lamb. And as a result, we are doubly his. So it's an absurd thing to think that we can rob God and get away with it. God's judgment will be there. So when the people say, how have we robbed God? Then the God says, okay, this is the accounting that you owe me. Check up in your tithes and your offerings. Okay, In your tithes and your offerings, have you really been giving it to me? That's what the Lord is saying. Now, the word tithe here refers to the 10% tax on the population that was collected by the Levites in regional storehouses across Judah, while the second term offerings refers to the 10% tax on the material collected by the Levites, which is supposed to be delivered to the temple in Jerusalem. Now, this is what the tithe basically is. It's a, like a a 10% tax to be paid to the temple. It was maybe called as a, a temple tax. You know? It's like a tax deduction at source. In today's terminology, it would be more like the income tax that you paid. Okay? A percentage of your income goes to the government there because it was a theocratic government. A percentage of their income went to the temple. Now, we must also remember that Tithe is not something for us today because it was not just something for the Israelites. You know, tithing was practiced by Abraham 400 years before the law was even established when he gave a tenth of everything he owned to the priest Melchizedek. Okay? So when the, the scripture here is speaking about tithing, 
Okay, we must remember these different different principles in our lives. Okay, number one, tithing was that before the law came in. Okay, it was an expression of giving and offering. When the tithe was instituted for the nation of Israel, it was like a temple tax that was given to the theocratic government. But it was not just the 10%. Actually, apart from that, you put all the offering together by totaling everything, the people actually get 23% of their income for the purpose of maintaining the temple of God and the priests who served within it. So 10% was a straight tax. There was other an amount that was paid so that people who, who could not afford could travel to the uh, temple yearly for the festivals. There was also another amount that was paid for the upkeep of the uh, sacrifices that were made, the priests and other things. So there was a total of around 23%. Okay. Now, you may say or you may ask this question, does the tithe apply today? Should we give a tithe of our income to God? We are under grace, isn't it? We are no longer under the law. We are under grace. But you remember, grace is always broader than the law. Grace always demands more than the law. Okay, <laughs> let me share with you, you know, some uh, two simple uh, understandings of it. You know? If you notice in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, Jesus told this, uh, you know, the people around, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, whatever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who's angry with his brother, brother will be subject to judgment. The Lord says, okay, this is what the law said, but I'm saying even if you are angry, that's under grace. Grace requires more than the law. Also, if you notice in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Not just the action alone, even the thought itself is sin. Grace always demands more. Grace never expects less. It always demands more. So if you are not required to give a tenth based on the Old Testament law, since we are not under the law, then should we give any less than the Old Testament saints did now that we are under grace? Obviously, the answer will be no. We should give more. Why should we give more? Because it is a spiritual act of worship. 10% can only be used as a guide for giving. Much like training wheels on a bicycle guide those who are learning to ride. Initially, when you're learning to drive uh, ride a bicycle, you have those training wheels. It's like those attachment, additional ones, just to help you to learn how to give. But as you begin to give, then you recognize that you're not giving to God because you are under an obligation to give, but you're giving to God because of the inexpressible gift of his son. Because he loves us so much, he did not withhold his only son but gave him up for us all. So we are saying, Lord, I want to give all of myself to you. So the New Testament principle, remember, is not the tithing, but it is more than the tithing. God doesn't require our money. He actually 
requires us a heart. He wants us to understand that a closed hand, a closed-fisted hand is unable to receive God's blessing. But with a generous open hand, what we are really doing is opening up ourselves, thanksgiving to God. We are no longer rebellious. We are no longer holding back, but we are opening ourselves and giving to him so that he is able to continuously bless us. Three simple principles from the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 2 tells us, On the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. Three simple New Testament principles. Principle one, you would say, is giving should be punctual on the first day of the week. Let it not just be when I feel like, when I want to. It has to be specific. As soon as your salary comes, keep that aside. It has to be punctual. Secondly, it has to be personal. Each one of you, each one of you. Giving is not a suggestion, okay? But God expects each one to give. As soon as you get uh, the first income, you know, whether you have a large income, small income, your first package itself, if you have learned to give, you know, that 10% to God, then you will find as your income grows, you will be even more than happy to give more than 10%. For example, if your first income was a thousand rupees that you got before you started working, maybe, okay? If you decided to give 100 rupees of that, then when you have got 10,000 or a lakh, it'll be far easier for you to give more. But if on the other hand, you said, oh, 100 rupees from the 1,000, I have to give, it's too much, and you kept back for yourself. As your salary increases, you'll find it even more difficult to give. Giving has to start young. When you have the little, if you have learned to give as an expression, that God is the one who has given you that expression of thanksgiving to God, then as God blesses you more, then you would also be able to give more. Somebody put it across this way. He said, give according to your income, lest God make your income according to your giving. Okay, that's the third principle. It has to be proportional. The Bible says a sum of money in keeping with his income. So this is the quote for that. Give according to your income, lest God make your income according to your giving. So three simple New Testament principles. Let our giving be punctual. Let our giving be personal. Let our giving also be proportional. So God is saying here, because you're consistently robbing me, he says, I'm going to pass judgment. Okay, <laughs> you know. The next verse, he says, you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. There's going to be a national penalty, which is matched because it was a national crime. It was not just one or two people doing it. It was the entire nation doing it. So the Lord says, I'm going to punish this whole nation. <clears throat> and it says, this is the reason for you are cursed with a, uh, a curse because you are robbing me. Warren Worsby put it across this way when he said, whenever we rob God, we always rob ourselves. Whenever we rob God, we always rob ourselves. To begin with, we rob ourselves of the spiritual blessings that always accompany obedience and faithful giving. 
But even more, the money that rightfully belongs to God that we keep for ourselves never stays with us. It may end up going to the doctor or your repairs for your vehicles or more tax that has to be given. It doesn't really stay. That is why if you notice the prophet Haggai says, you know, you know, money went to a pocket full of holes. If you're robbing God, the money is not going to stay with us. So it's going to, we are only robbing ourselves. So that's a penalty that God says will be put. You are going to be cursed with a curse. We will see what the curse is all about. Okay. But the Lord also says, on the other hand, if you don't want this curse to come upon you, I'm also offering you a challenge to return. If you obey me and give God his due, then the Lord says, I will prove myself. I will prove my graciousness to you. I will abundantly bless you. So what is the challenge of obedience that the Lord gave the children of Israel? He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. It was the requirement of God that the people give money and supplies to the preservation of the Levites. Okay, Now they were not doing that, so sometimes the Levites were not having their food. On the other hand, they were saying maybe, oh, we can't give 10% of our amount. You know, So the Lord corrects them and says, no, you can give. Test me, prove me. Check it out, okay? So when the Lord is saying, oh, yeah, bring the whole tithe, okay? This word whole would suggest that the problem is not one of completely avoiding this obligation, but rather of responding only half-heartedly, okay? The whole tithe, keep some for yourself and I need it, you know, I can't do without this. How can I give so much, you know? And rather grudgingly giving, not the whole amount still, but still keeping back for yourself. If you notice, in the temple, there were special storage rooms for keeping the grain and the produce and the money that the people brought to the Lord in obedience to the law. And these guys were not doing that. So the storehouse were rooms in the temple for keeping the grain and the produce and the money. I wanted to keep and I remembering this as we go later on also into the aspect of bringing the tithe into the storehouse. Can the storehouse today be called as the local church? Or is the storehouse specifically for the temple times? Because if it was a temple tax related with the storehouses in the temple, today we cannot use this verse to say, if we bring the whole tithe into the church, then the Lord will definitely supply your needs. Okay, We'll explain that a little more clearly. Now, in verse 10, the second part of that, he says, you know, test me now in this, says the Lord, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Remember this test that the Lord is saying, test me now, bring your whole tithes into the storehouse. This is not something new, but it's only an appeal to keep the covenant obligations. The Lord had already told them earlier, this is what you're expected to do. So the Lord is not coming up with a new command and saying, if you do this, then I will do this for you. No, no. <laughs> the Lord is saying, this is what I've already told you earlier. This is the command that this tax has to be paid. And as a result, if you're not going to pay this tax, then you're going to suffer. 
In today's understanding, it will be give Caesar his due. If you don't give Caesar his due, you know, if the taxes are not paid, you will definitely be punished. So this is the law that has already been put into place. This is not a new law that you know, the Lord is speaking about. But oftentimes people have taken this verse out of context and say, hey, test me now. If you bring this to the local church, then the Lord will open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing for you. And this verse has often been used you know, by different, different groups of people over the years. Okay, And um, basically, this is a form of forcing God's hand by human activity taking the unchangeable covenant promises of God and misapplying them, okay? Now, let me read to you a quote you know, by an individual who believes in this particular thinking. He says, in tithing, you are laying the foundation for financial security and abundance. You are establishing deposits with God which can be used when you need them. Now, that's not what the, God, what the Lord is saying over here. The Lord is not saying this is like a banking system. You put some money into that, then the Lord will make sure that the money will come back to you with interest. No, that's not what God is saying. God is saying, I'm a covenant-keeping God. This is what I've told you <coughs> you should be doing. If you obey me, then this is what is going to happen to you. Technically, there's nothing of finances that is spoken of over here. This is only speaking rather of fulfilling your obligation to God. God who has made the covenant with you, he says, I won't change this. I will never leave you nor forsake you. The Lord is saying, I want you to respond to me. I want you to keep your side of the covenant. He is not saying that this is like you know, a foolproof method for more finances in your life. So here when the scripture is telling us over here, the context is definitely very, very important. The test is of the people and the priests and the Levites. Will they fulfill their obligations so that God can respond through blessing? It is they fulfilling their obligations in obedience. It is they fulfilling their obligations in living a holy life, in keeping their part of the covenant. Then the Lord says his part of the covenant is going to be there. You cannot take this verse out of context and say, if you give some money here, then God is going to give you some more money. And especially to turn around that storehouse into the local church is definitely not the understanding of this particular verse. John Piper in his book, you know, Desiring God, puts it across this way when he says, God increases our yield so that by giving, we can prove our yield is not our God. God increases our yield so that by giving, we can prove our yield is not of God. So our giving to God is not like an investment. Our giving to God is an expression of what God has done and is continuing to do for us. Our giving to God is an attitude by which we show that I'm not depending on this but I'm rather depending on God, that God is indeed my provider. It is not by my, my blood, sweat, and tears, so I've got this income, so this is mine. Our understanding, it is God who has blessed us. It belongs to God. I am only a steward. So the Lord says, if you keep your side of the covenant, then he promises a blessing. What is the blessing? Two things. He says, one, 
a protection against external enemies. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it may not destroy the fruits of the ground. The Lord promises not only to provide, but also to protect. The Lord says, I am going to protect you. Psalm 91, if you notice, is an interesting psalm. We can, in this particular time of the pandemic, say, hey, I claim that psalm so that I will be protected from all pestilences. But the starting point over there is those who take their refuge in him, those who love him, those who abandon themselves to him. The promise is for those individuals. You cannot just take one verse and say, God is going to protect me. I will do what I want to, but still I will get the protection. No, that does not work out that way. The Lord says, yes, he will definitely protect us. <laughs> okay? He says, I will provide for you. I will protect you. You are my child. I am your father. And by putting our trust in God, this, if you notice, is only one example that the Lord is giving us over here about our giving that we rob God. Now, what about our other aspects, not just the money aspect, our time, our treasure, our talents, you know, all those areas. If we say this is mine, not recognizing this actually God's, we are using it for our own selves, for our own glory rather than for God, we are still robbing God. So there's a protection from the external, but there's also an assurance of an internal help. He says, nor will your wine in the field cast its grapes. What is the meaning of this word, cast its grapes? Cast is the Hebrew word shakal, as, uh, which refers to bereavement of children as well as miscarriage. So that in reference to the grape wines, it means they will not lose their fruit by dropping off their grapes before they ripen. It is like a person, a, a woman who is pregnant, you know, before the full term, you know, there's a miscarriage. The Lord says, no, that's not going to happen. It will be a full term so that there's going to be health inside. There'll be fruit inside. That's the assurance that God gives. A protection from outside and also health within, okay? Then he also gives us you know, a reputation that we will have a good reputation. These are the blessings that God gives. He says, all the nations will call you blessed for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. You will be called blessed because you will be a delightful land. God will give us a good reputation as he promised Abraham, okay? Now, remember, in these verses, there's a promise of blessing that's attached with God's challenge of giving. There's no magical formula being taught in these verses, you know, such as if you give to God, then he will give back to you. Rather, we have a learning in this particular uh, uh, section. We must excel in our giving because all that we have belongs to God. This is where in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 7, Paul writes and says, excel in the grace of giving. Excel in the <coughs> grace of giving. So let's ask ourselves, even in this one area, this is just to remember a sample. In the area of our giving, are we robbing God? Have we kept for ourselves? Have we deviated? In a, are we experiencing his blessing in our lives. If we want God's blessing in our lives, he assures us he's going to keep his side of the covenant. I, the Lord, do not change. But 
if we want God's blessings, then the Lord says, your side of the bargain, your side of living a holy life, your side of putting me first in your life, your side of making sure that your understanding that all that we have comes from God is there. That should be our attitude. So God is saying over here, I am a God who keeps my covenant. Are you keeping your covenant with God this evening? Let's look at a couple of application questions. Number one, what does it mean that grace never expects less, but always expects more? How can you call this grace then? Ask yourself, how can you call this grace when grace never expects less, but always expects more? Number two, why do you think we rarely feel like giving even when we have an abundance? When we get an increment, you know, do we think of increasing our giving? Or do we say, praise God, I got an increment. Okay. Number three, consider the stories about the rich wrong ruler in Luke 18 and Zacchaeus in Luke 19. How are they similar and how are they different? Both of them are speaking about riches, isn't it? One man was not willing to give up his riches, and he went away sorrowful. The other individual, when he got converted, he says, I have robbed all these people, I will give it so many folds back to them. Number four, how do our spending habits and our hearts relate? How can we measure what is really in our heart, what we value most, by checking up on how much we have spent, on what we have spent? Look back into your transactions, even over the last month. What have you spent on what? What does that show you about what's really in your heart? Number five, God equates a refusal to give with robbery. Robbery from God is not only taking what is not yours, but withholding what belongs to him. How does this make you feel? To understand that this is robbing God. How does that make you feel? Number six, how have you found your view of money changing at various points of your life? How has your view been changed or affirmed as a result of this message? When you think about the first salary that you got and how much you gave, and now when you are giving, has it changed or has it been the same? Number seven, or has it gone down? Number seven, how do you think New Testament Christians should think about the tithe? Should New Testament Christians tithe? Should they give 10% at all? Ask yourself. Number eight, how do you, our spending habits and our hearts relate? What's the correlation between these two? Number nine, in a world of endless needs, how can a sensitive Christian know when he has to give enough? When and how and where and how much? he should give. How can he know that? Because there are so many needs all around us, isn't it? And we recognize we need to give. Now, how can we be sensitive to find out how and where and how much to give? Number 10, in contrast again, is it a sin to live in luxury when people are in desperate need? What is luxury? And does God require us to live in poverty? Number 11, how should we harmonize Give to everyone who asks you. And the other verse which says, if anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. How do you harmonize these two things? Everybody, anyone who asks you for money, do you give to them? 
or do you say no first find work you know if you're not willing to work then i won't give you anything number 12 if everything belongs to god how is it even possible to rob god how do we rob god if everything actually belongs to him number 13 what is the standard for giving today in the new testament church number 14 should unbelievers have some sense of god's abundant blessing in their lives even an individual who is not a believer should they have some recognition that this is not my own that god has blessed me and finally number 15 what part of today's message has the greatest impact on you where were you most encouraged or intrigued or even challenged ask yourself where are you this evening and be willing to make necessary changes in your life let's bow our heads and pray together